No challenges remaining. Episode 49, square of seven big numbers. I am Ben Rothenberg, and joining me, as always, is my square of seven, Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. I don't even know what that means. It's really late. I don't think I know what it means either. I think both of us are a bit punchy, and you just spent a good two hours live-tweeting Serena on HSN. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. How was it? I think it... I think her... Her word smithness definitely rubbed off on me there. Nice. I mean, I think she's definitely, okay, she's gotten a lot, lot better as, like, a host. She rolls with, like, lulls much better now, and she can kind of sell things. She's better with callers than she used to be. She's definitely improved quite a bit. She still has some, it's not perfect, but we don't want Serena to reach a level where she's, you know, a natural at that. We want it to be something that looks not natural you know i totally agree who would you want to do like a serena on hsn andy murray like what other player andy oh murray my God. andy murray 100 percent. you're so weird can you imagine andy murray like yeah this is my spandex corset <laughs> leggings and uh it has a really elegant finish and the has a really beefy fabric I, I mean, I don't, I don't even know what he would sound like. It'd be... I don't even have to imagine it because I've just heard it. Yeah. So, it's eerie, you know. right? Eerily it's accurate. eerie. It's eerie. I don't think, yeah, I don't think you know what the word eerie means, but we'll go with it. Okay, sure. sure. <laughs> On this show, we are going to take a lot of questions from you guys because it's a fairly slow time of year. So that'll be fun. And then take a number and wrap up the show. So let's just get right to it. For those of you guys who like the show and listen to us, you can leave us reviews on iTunes. We really appreciate that. You can also follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash NCR podcast. Those are good things to do, eh, Courtney? They are. And we do appreciate if you guys do it. We don't like shilling, or at least I hate shilling and I hate asking people for likes and all that crap. But Mm -hmm. it does help us just kind of not just with like getting people to listen to the podcast, but just even, I don't know, when people Google search tennis podcasts and things like that or run searches on iTunes, it helps if we get reviews. So please be nice and kind and take five minutes to do it there we go that's our groveling for the day i gotta take a shower now that was gross speaking of speaking of groveling let's see how i can segue this speaking of groveling roger federer is playing gestad this week (laughs) and they gave him a cow they gave him a cow because as as people do as people do i mean who doesn't give their friends cows don't answer that but the question (laughs) the question we got related to that is from ang for all surfaces who asks us what livestock would you give the other members of the big four so we can think about that but let's also just talk about the cow itself and this was a nice looking cow it was a big cow sort of had a nice um i don't know blondish hue to it maybe like a caramel sort of hair on the cow maybe <laughs> and federer got this cow for playing the 250 in Switzerland, which he hadn't played in a long time playing clay after wimbledon is very unfederally and he did it at hamburg too did not win hamburg lost to Del Bonus. And yeah, so what, anyway, what do you make of Federer's sort of run that has wound up with him? He hasn't started yet in Gestad as of when we're recording this, but he's already lasted himself a cow. So I think it's got to be all gravy from here. I mean, I hope Tony Godsick was able to negotiate a better appearance fee than a cow. First of all, <laughs> earn your weight in gold, man. Like, 
can't can't be showing up. Roger Federer can't just be showing up for cows these days. If he gets the I mean, cows this, weight in gold. That's pretty good. That would be solid, and that would be good agent work. Yes, I would tip my cap to to Tony Godsick if you were able to secure that. But yeah, it's. I just think that it's funny. Like, I mean, obviously the visual is funny. I mean, yes. Roger Federer standing on a clay court wearing like a plaid shirt, and like there's a cow wearing a weird Marge Simpson esque flower hat, <laughs> and there's like alpornists surrounding him filming what i can only presume to be a ricola ad it's all very surreal it's very surreal it's very swiss. and it's very swiss and it's really it's just that's where roger's at these days things are kind of weird and not quite right in the roger federer world yeah. universe the Federverse. and so sure why not in these wonky times when he's playing with a blacked out 98 square inch racket and he's playing on clay after wimbledon and he's number six in the race to london and he's having to pin up his entire year by saying but i won holla so it's not really a slump because i won holla right yeah why not here have a cow have a cow or or don't have a cow as he said or don't have a cow he's telling us not to have a cow about him and yet exactly he's having a cow he's having a little bit of a cow it's a little weird pretty big cow i think it's just it's just an interesting time for federer because he was at hamburg a tournament with no real other you know top eight players i don't think not no top 10 players i guess haas was the number two seed and he made it to the semifinals and then lost and then fabio fonini won the tournament and it didn't feel that weird <laughs> you know i'm telling you this is the fetterverse right now this is the world we live in i'm really also excited for the fonini verse because <laughs> i think we've said i think i've said on the show before that if you could take like a clay make a clay quarter swap and swap fabio fonini into the top five for Ferrer, it would be like the biggest entertainment upgrade that the ATP could possibly have. Because Spinini is just like a cartoon character of a person, and it's tremendous. And I'm very excited for him being a relevant thing. Oh, I'm down. I'm totally down. He came back, I think, today. At, at one point, I checked the live score. I thought he was down like 1-5 in the first set to Timo DeBacher in the, his opening round of Umog. And he came back to win the match in straight sets. I mean, this is this is the... I mean, screw post-Rosal world. Like, this is like a whole different level of weird. It's the summer of Fabi- that's going Foggy. On. Of, of sorry the summer of fabio the summer of fabio the is fog super has weird i don't know what you want to i feel like there should be t-shirts or something that say the fog has and then some verb yeah i'm sure they sell them in san francisco <laughs> presumably yeah but yeah i mean the, these are the these are the times in which we live right now fabio fonini wins back-to-back tournaments and we're like okay and roger federer gets a cow and we're like all right like none of, none of this phases us. we are very unfazed i mean there's just been some weird stuff that's been going on we talked about it i mean we'll talk maybe a little bit i think we're gonna talk about world tennis possibly later in the show but like for example lethal huber got like concussed by a ball and nobody noticed that's how yeah that's how normal this week has been just, please like, please explain that uh ben because you're right i mean nobody noticed it i got a few messages asking about it because she was in the hospital apparently but explain this incident for the world what happened is during warm-ups of a world tennis match in washington which i missed because i'm in the middle of serving on a jury this week which has been all sorts of fun lethal huber was standing in the back of a court and not really paying attention and sam groth aka the fastest server in tennis hit a serve during warm-ups that hit her like in the back of the head and she was apparently in some pain but continued for a long time and in the match like well her event wasn't up next so she sat on the bench for a while and then she played the first seven games of her event and there was only one left but she decided she couldn't make it any longer and got carted off court on a, on a gurney and then on a gurney on a gurney yeah she was like not a wheelchair a gurney gurney she was like it was like a bed thing uh, which under world two tennis rules left her partner sasha vickery to play the women's doubles remaining game by herself 
<laughs> this is wrestling tennis with two-on-one doubles. And the weirder thing about it is that that was the second time in two nights that the Philadelphia Freedoms had been forced to play two-on-one doubles after an injury. <laughs> because the night before, Vicky Duval had gotten hurt and Liesl had to play by herself. That's right. I remember seeing tweets about her having to play, like, what is it called? Canadian doubles? Yep. Is that what they Canadian call it? Doubles, yeah. Or South African doubles. Or, sorry, American doubles, as she calls it. American. American. And, yeah, that's how they do it. And apparently I was talking to Castle's people today, and not only do you have to play by yourself, but you have to forfeit the points that the other person would have returned. Whoa! So you really have no chance of winning (laughs) unless you win, like, every single point one-on-two and, like, the deciding point. I guess none of the serve games the other person has. I mean, it's just why they make people go through this one-on-two thing. I don't know, but I really wish I'd seen it. I really do. The sheer spectacle of it. It sounds tremendous. It does. And Serena was there watching this, by the way. <laughs> Serena was in the house for all this going on. So There was a report in the Washington Post today, mm-hmm. like on one of their blogs, okay. that she was spotted having dinner with one Martina Hingis. I heard that that did happen. Yeah. I can, I so. can confirm that there were there was dinner and, and drinks, apparently. Oh, my goodness. Because they're more toggly buddies now. Not in the same way, but they were in Mauritius thought- together and stuff. So, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I guess I just want to know what they're talking about, like the finer points of higher education or something like that. I would, I would assume so. But anyway, back to back to livestock segue. I don't know how to yes. away from that to this. So, Courtney, do you have an answer to Ang's question? Any livestock that come to mind as gifts for Federer? Well, Federer already has the cow. I mean, he's just like his second cow. And the cow is a burden. Like, they don't give you the cow and then, like, take it somewhere for you. You were kind of stuck with this cow from what I understand. No, no, The no. first time, I think That's he had to not... find a place to house the cow, like, himself. Back in 03 when he got his first cow, there was oh. like I think he had to like go on Craigslist and find cow shelters or something. I don't know. I don't know. I I'm not sure about that because I read one report that said that he, that with that first cow, Juliet, Juliet, uh-huh. that he didn't even have like full rights to her milk. Oh really? Like in terms of the ownership of the actual cow, like it wasn't his actually. IMG had that in some negotiation. Like, okay, we'll give <laughs> you the cow's milk. However, exactly. we want you know such and such. Yeah, no. So, so I'm not really sure about the logistics of the whole cow sitch, but okay. the cow stays in Castad. It gets raised by like a dairy farmer it's and chills have out. Visitation rights. He does have visitation rights. He does, but his schedule is so busy that he often cannot come and visit the cow. This is all based off of information that I that I dredged up uh, based off of the first cow. Right. Where they were like, they invited him to come, but then like his schedule didn't allow for it. And then the cow got slaughtered and et cetera. Such a, et such cetera. a Roger Federer thing to say. Like, I'm too busy, you know, being number one and winning Grand Slams to visit my cow. Right. I mean, he was too busy, you know, getting deep in Grand Slams and winning so much he couldn't try a racket, let alone go and visit a cow. So, you know, but now his schedule's wide open. It is wide open for <laughs> Brisbane and for all other sorts of things. Exactly. But in terms of like giving livestock i don't know i mean wouldn't you just give i mean if we're going by what happened and why roger got a cow i mean wouldn't you give rafa like a pig a pig porque like because spain's known for ham they're also known for i would give him a bull oh that makes more sense well i would definitely give him a bull that's like i don't know i kind of like the idea of rafa with a pig (laughs) like a little pig like a like a teacup pig no hell no 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 i'm talking some big ass like 
ugly, fat, sloth-like, not in looks, but just in action. You watch your mouth about Rafa, young lady. I'm just saying, I think it'd be funny. Okay. It's a haul out a big old, like, you know, 300-pound pig onto a clay court. That'd be hilarious. That would be pretty funny. I think there's funnier players you could give that animal to, but it would be funny, pretty funny for Rafa. Fair enough. Speaking of size and Rafa, I saw a photo of Rafa the other day, and he looks really small. He's tiny. This is my whole thing about Rafa. Everybody, I know that when he first came on, he was, like, definitely, like, more built, but these days is like Rafa's like small yeah he does not look big at all and I don't mean just like these days like this year I mean like this has been like maybe an observation I've at least had for at least like probably two years now at least there's like no upper body mass there may be still like some bicepage I'm sure but like the rest of it not really yeah no he's not he's not like a physically imposing guy no to me when he like comes into press or when you see him or walk past him I never really actually noticed but like Whereas, like, Roger still kind of has this, like, regalness about his physicality when he walks into a room that I don't know if people think he's, like, an athlete, but people think that he's, like, something. And then Andy Murray is always somebody who, like, is always bigger in person than you'd think he'd be. Yeah, because he's so sort of shrinky and slumpy on TV that when you actually see him in person, he's quite big and strapping. Yeah, he's a strong boy. Yeah. Well, what, speaking of Andy Murray, what animal would you give him? What's the official animal of, of the UK, of Britain? I think it's, like, a dragon. <laughs> i'm not really sure right don't they have or like don't they have dragons or like i think everybody has dragons are like are like hobbits animals they're not animals I think right? hobbits are animals no. what about i think they give like in scotland they have like a bunch of sheep for like haggis purposes but the thing about that is that, that that's like also like a not derogatory is not the right word but it's like used as kind of like a way to mock scottish people so i don't think that giving him a sheep is necessarily i don't know like i could see that being as a, like a prank okay <laughs> Because giving someone a cow isn't a prank. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, for Andy Murray, what animal would he get? I mean, I think the guy really, 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 really likes dogs. Yes, so just there get you him go. another dog. Get him a Border Terrier Scottish Open. Those dogs stole the show in that documentary, the BBC documentary. It was all okay. about the dogs. And they're, and the, when the one dog, Maggie, is a tremendous tweeter. I mean, tremendous. Second tremendous. second only to Michaela Bryan, I think, in terms of that's tweeters by right. proxy and tennis. Yes, I think that's probably right. Yeah. Then that leaves Djokovic. What kind of animal does Novak Djokovic get? What was that? Was it was it sheep? Maybe you give no- Novak the sheep. Wasn't it the sheep's milk cheese thing? Oh, it was something weirder than that. It was donkey cheese. Donkey. Okay, then give him a donkey. Donkey for donkey cheese. That's fair. And then make him milk the donkey. It's only right. Yeah, if you if you like the cheese so much, make it. Although, didn't we learn that was, like, completely made up? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, the donkey cheese isn't made up. No, that but, is but like, Novak really actually no. buying it. That was, like, that was such a typical off-season story. It was. So. It was a typical off-season story that... From the Daily Mail. Shocker. Yeah, exactly. I was trying, I was thinking, I was like, it was the Daily Mail, wasn't it? That just got, I mean, completely misreported and Daily Mailed. Yeah. Uh, effectively so there you go but it was good for blog traffic Mm -hmm. (laughs) steve kinslow at kinslow asks us i've been geeking out on the stream of the pro circuit on the usda site and also world team tennis do you think tennis can grow fans with small events and i guess i'll add sort of and with streams so courtney this is three weeks of the year that world team tennis exists and every year there's just basically all the pieces about it are what do we make of this you know quirky little upstart weird thing and never mostly not about actual like breaking down boston versus washington matchups or anything like that right i would i would hope that that was not the question so what but what do you make of world in tennis being someone then i'll talk but 
you from the outside, because I don't think you've ever been to one. Yes, what do you, that's correct. What do you make I've, I've of never been to one. a World Team Tennis? I will say that, like, if you're, like, I feel like in, I've, I've, I've talked about World Team Tennis in, like, my other old podcast, my old 40 Deuce podcast, mm-hmm. which would have been, like, you know, four or five years ago. I think back then, I definitely just thought World Team Tennis was a complete and utter joke and waste of time. Okay. And I've come around on it. I mean, I, I don't think, I don't tune in to World Team Tennis matches, really. Um, unless there's an interesting player there or something or, you know, I don't know, something's happening. You get some weird matchups in there that kind of like, oh, I should watch that. You know, like when Hengis was playing one of the Williams sisters or something or right. something like that. Right. It, it's, it, but that's the thing is that it's it's matchup based yeah, or personality based. I'm not watching it because it's world team tennis. Right. You know, I'm watching it because Martina Hingis is playing or because, of, oh, it's Anthony Roddick. He's playing or something like that. So you know, but I've come around to it to where I don't have any antagonistic like feelings towards it. But um, for the most part, I, I kind of I guess my feelings can be summed up in I'm happy that it exists. I'm happy that it is able to get draw crowds to the extent that it can and that people like it and that it gives opportunities to kind of lower lesser known players to kind of have a their glory day mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So in all those ways, I think I think I think it's great. I don't understand how it makes money. I don't really know if it's actually building anything like if if it's you know as far as i know i don't think any of the teams are, are making a profit yeah i'm not i know i know that the castles have said that they're not yeah and, and if the and castles aren't then i can't think anybody else is yes and no because they also spend so much more than all the other teams i mm. mean they really go all out with their stadium is very there's a lot of amenities and a lot of you know big scoreboards and music and lights and all that stuff and big damn players i mean they have a, a much bigger roster than any other team for the most part and they used to have both william sisters at one point now they have martina hingis they have leander pays who's one of the higher you know ranking doubles players who's on there used to have renee stubbs uh, so they have a they they do not save their money there for sure they also yeah but they're also dominant but they also don't seem making a profit i mean the thing with the league is i'm just not sure how it grows given the constraints around it and i think it's a really kind of fun i mean everyone who goes to world tennis has a good time i mean it's like a minor league baseball game in a lot of ways i know they don't Mm -hmm. like being compared to minor leagues but they are you know below the main tour so they are a minor league in tennis and they just do at least the castles which is the only stadium i've been to i know the other ones on tv have all looked much much deader the castles really do a lot of atmosphere pumping up and music between every single point which is a little much sometimes guys saying you know come on castles fans you know put your signs in the air and all this other stuff that like kids get into it and it's not very expensive tickets and there's a lot of pluses to it but in terms of it being something that is a considered a more relevant part of the tour year results-wise, I think that's tough just because the schedule doesn't allow for it. Unless it was to have a radical shift and sort of take up this time window in like November, December, where Mahesh Bhupati's league is aiming for, I think that's mm-hmm. the only time where there's really enough of a gap to establish a longer season. And even still, that's not very long. Yeah, I mean, I think that World Team Tennis also suffers a little bit. In, and, and obviously, this is more of an issue of perception, because mm-hmm. I don't, I obviously don't know how... Well, I, I very seriously doubt that the players don't take it seriously. I'm sure that they do. But it's still, at least in my mind, and I think that in a lot of people's minds, it's, it's an exhibition. Yes and no. There's definitely parts, and that's the, one of the little sort of inconsistencies it has that I know I've talked to people who are in the league that they don't like about it and they have things that are like these intense sort of grindy matches like tonight I, I was there briefly and saw Bobby Reynolds versus Amir Weintraub playing singles which are both guys you know way out to the top 100 and they actually get 
money based on matches they win and lose, like in their salaries, it's built into that. So there is stuff at stake other than just the team winning. And so that part of it is very much genuine. But there's also nights built into the schedule for these teams where it'll be like a John McEnroe versus Jim Courier match or something. And that mm-hmm. part is definitely completely XO. And actually, by the way, McEnroe playing tonight only w- played just doubles and mixed doubles and only won one of his 11 games. Huh. And that's, which in some ways reflects well on the quality of the rest of the league, I guess, but mm-hmm. does not reflect especially well on, you know, the validity of putting McEnroe out there. And that's an outlier result because usually he holds his own better than that um, in doubles. But yeah, there's definitely. The league has a bunch of different faces to it, and it has the support now. The investment of Andy Roddick and Venus Williams have both bought, I think, fairly decent-sized shares in the league, and are both out there promoting it more this year. So I think it's got some future. I think it'll last, but it'll mm-hmm. grow. I'm not sure. And it's been waffling around between like 11 and 8 franchises for a long time now, and losing as many as it adds, if not more. So I, I, I don't know exactly what the future holds for it. But if they can sustain what I think that's got to be their main goal. Oh, for sure. You know, sustaining what you have. And then and on top of that, if they can negotiate, you know, better TV contracts and things. I mean, I do think the streaming has helped a lot. Yeah. I mean, in terms of being able to get just world team tennis in front of people. I mean, I think that most, you know, hardcore tennis fans who are the types that we see on Twitter or, you know, things like that, like, we're kind of used to watching, te- you know, tennis tennis on streams yeah. and so you know having that access is huge and, and, and same and... with the challengers actually that he mentioned yeah. in the question too i mean exactly. i know that during the usta green clay playoff for the french open we were tuning into streams of like because ryan harrison was down there during that and he was a bigger name there was like a harrison young match and having that streamable was, was cool and i think they're i'm not sure how much money they make or how much that costs but i know on those streams they have like and on the world in tennis streams too, I think they have like multiple announcers, mm-hmm. so they don't take it lightly, and they have multiple cameras and stuff. So they really put a good amount of effort into it. One other thing I'll add on world in tennis TV wise, I know that they have a good amount of local TV coverage on them. Like they'll show up on like whatever the local right. Comcast Sports Network for whatever region it is, which is good. I mean, if it's gonna be a thing in the community, local TV is good. We don't always see that on the national level. Exactly. Like I said, it's great that it exists and, and to the extent that it can still keep getting, you know, marquee names to play, which it's never really struggled too much with that. I think it's great. But, you know, I think one of the, the big image issues that it, that it struggles with is that, yeah, it, it can't decide whether it wants to be an EXO event or a pure, you know, competitive thing. And so long as there is even just a slight thought in the back of anyone's mind that it's just, you know, an exhibition thing, then it just kind of undercuts everything. I mean, it undercuts, you know, all the castle stuff, you know, like, oh, you know, whatever, long, longest team winning streak in pro sports. Yeah, but, you know, if I don't really think that these matches are actually hardcore competitive, then I don't really take that seriously. Yeah. You know, no, I and, think that, I think with the I think the castle's definitely oversold. But I think what they did was really incredible. Just the odds of it happening are incredibly small. Winning thirty, uh, what was the final number? Thirty-four straight matches. But I think them trying to equate themselves with the NBA or saying they beat the NBA record and now the Lakers' record was like no more is a little aiming too high and sort of because they did a cool thing on a small stage and just sort of make it that way. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a remarkable thing that happened in this unlikely place. Not. Yeah. Oh, look at us. We're the best ever. Right. It was a little, it being up close, I mean, it was a little. But I mean, still, but still winning 34 straight matches is hugely impressive. Yeah, it's a, it's a great achievement. But yeah, I think you're right. Like kind of blowing it up and, and making it into a big thing almost like made it look at times comical. Yeah. You know, like where you're just kind of like, oh, look at you with your tiny little trophy. Like, you know, that doesn't, again, that doesn't help with how 
the league is perceived or or anything like that. So it's but it's tough. I mean, it, it, you know, either they treat themselves like a serious league, in which case everybody kind of pats them on the head or they kind of like embrace the fact that they're just kind of this fun little, you know, three week excursion from like the hardcore tennis and then we and then nobody takes them seriously. So they're they're in a tough spot. I, th- I think they are going for the former on that. I think so too. And I think so too. That's probably the better long term strategy. I mean, I don't know how much growth potential they want to have. They need to be in more than eight markets, and it's weird because there's such a weird split of markets because all the East Coast teams are in these big cities. It's like Boston, Philadelphia, Washington, and New York, and then the Western teams are in Irving, Texas, Springfield, Missouri, Sacramento, and like Orange County. Orange County. Uh, somewhere in Orange County. I'm not even sure where in Orange County. Irvine. Irvine. Okay. So, yeah. So They play their matches at my alma mater. Oh, there you go. Yeah. You should make a road trip down there sometime. Mm, I packed Anyways. up I packed up my car the day that, like, I graduated from college, and I've never gone back, so probably not. <laughs> we got a couple questions about the 2011 U.S. Open champion, Samantha Soser. Uh, LaWanda asked us, Samantha Soser, what needs to happen to get her back on track? Yes, I'm asking you to be psychics and psychologists. And another question comes from Alyssa, who's much more succinct. She just says, Stoser, please discuss. (laughs) So, Courtney, you are, I defer to you on all things Samantha Jane Stoser. What is going on with Stoser right now? And what does her short-term future look like, do you think? Obviously, I think these questions kind of came in during a week where Stoser suffered a particularly shockingly bad loss to Olga Gavortseva in the first round of Stanford, or opening round of Stanford, I guess. Where I think second she... round. I think she had a bye, maybe? Yeah, that's why I said opening round. Okay. Yeah, she had I don't a know bye. if that works. Is that... I don't think that works. No, if it's her opening round. I think it's her opening match is how I write it, just stylistically. Mm, I always just say opening round in mm. her opening round, because that would be the round that she opens at. I don't like that. Fair enough. Anyway, this is why we have editors, folks. Exactly. My editors let it through. Your editors don't. It's this is the consistency that we all love and crave. But yeah, no. So it was a bad loss. And I think everybody's like, oh, my gosh, I honestly don't read that much into the, the loss. It's first hard court matches um, are always. And Gavortsev is no joke. Yeah, Gavortsev is no joke. But Sam played horribly. It's, I don't know. First matches, you know, after a long break or when surfaces change or all that sort of stuff across the board. I generally don't read very much into them. But I mean, on the whole, I mean. She played well at Wimbledon. I mean, yeah, she really lost well. to Lisicki in three sets, but that was, and she said it herself here in Stanford that that was the best she's ever played at Wimbledon. And so she was like actually really, really kind of pleased about it and thought her form was good. And, and I th- do think that people do kind of forget that she did get injured this year. Or what was it? A calf injury that forced her to pull out of Indian Wells when she made the semis? Uh, quarters. Yeah, that's right. Quarters. Yeah. And then obviously forced her out to retire to Jeannie Bouchard in Charleston. So her kind of clay preparation got kind of hardcore and clay preparation kind of all got derailed. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm not. What do people expect from Stozer? I guess that's what my question would be. So I don't know if I expect her to like be contending at majors necessarily. She's but... never been a consistent player. Yeah. I mean, that's not her MO whatsoever. I mean, she has. She has three titles to her name. Yeah, only three. Okay, three. And we were actually having this discussion in the press room today in Stanford where we were all kind of talking about, like, trying to figure out if there's ever been a player who has won a major with that few of titles. And there have been, but they have they were all when they nobody played the Australian Open. So it's like random people who won the Australian Open and never won, like, another title and stuff. Yeah. 
But for the most part, like to find a legit champion who, you know, had a great run and beat good people to have that few titles to their name. It's really pretty bizarre. shocking. It's really bizarre. And especially when you compare and we can talk. I think we've had this debate before, maybe. But who do you think has had the better career? Sam Stoser, who is a U.S. Open champion or Wozniacki? Right. I mean, well, who do you pick? Honestly, I pick Stoser. OK. I would pick Wozniacki for sure. Yeah, like I think that just, I mean, talk about not just the fact that Stozer's won a slam, but who, the players she's beaten in her career and how she's beaten them. So in terms of like big wins, she's just had more big wins. And yeah, maybe she wouldn't wasn't able to like string them together to in five or seven or whatever to win a you know tournament. But yeah, I mean, she's just, she has bigger wins. I mean, Wozniacki doesn't have big wins. She, Wozniacki has some wins. I mean, she's beaten Sharapova. She's beaten... Azarenka, she's beaten Serena, she's won like 21 titles, she spent 66 weeks at number one, and she did that through a lot of winning, even if it was a little bit of a sort of a weird time in tennis. Um, I mean, I think the amount of times where she was a relevant person playing really elite tennis was far more than Sam. Yeah, but if you take Wozniacki's quote-unquote big wins and you compare them to Sam's big wins, Sam's big, big, I mean, Wozniacki didn't do anything close to what Stozer has been able to do to beat Justine on clay at the French open to beat. I mean, all of Sam's big wins come on the big stages when they matter. No, like, true. you know, Wozniacki beating Sharapova when Sharapova is still kind of like on her comeback at the U S open. That's probably her biggest win. You'd mm-hmm. say. Yeah. She also beat not as big, but she beat like his nets of open. Cause that's a six seed to make the U S open on route to the U S open final the first time. I mean, her U S open final draw was a joke. Cause she got Udan in the quarters and Wickmeyer Wickmeyer. so that was not that does not you know speak that well but she i mean has had a few just sort of solid wins that are unspectacular i mean she beat skiavoni quarters of australia she beat yankovic i mean not these are not big wins but there's so (laughs) like i'm like waiting i'm like come on then (laughs) but there's so many more she also killed sharapova and newell's once like one and oh or something I mean, well, she does. She I did mean, have her moment. She's won a bunch of premier mandatory titles. No, I no she's doubt had, about that. Yeah. The titles, yeah, absolutely. But I'm talking about like the big wins on the big stage when it matters. I mean, Sam's beaten Serena twice at a slam and one time in a slam final. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. I mean, it's, just, and, it's all about what you count. And also, Sam's low points are much lower than Caroline's. Absolutely. So, I mean, there's a debate to be had if you guys want to weigh in. Please, Team Caro or Team Sam. Feel free to weigh in. I mean, I'd be curious. I mean, it, you're absolutely right that it, it how you answer that reflects what you value. Exactly. Is all. So there you go. We also got a couple questions, back-to-back questions, actually, about we usually talk about players who are doing well and who are winning tournaments, but we got a couple questions about players who are not doing that. EED, uh, well, it's Evan, asked us, I like hearing about players on the rise, but I love a good slump. Uh, who are top 30 players to have the worst summer hardcourt seasons? And Peter Collins, right after that, asked us, not really a question, but how about talking to those players who are having a terrible year? The winners are always covered well. So, Courtney, who are some of the names that come to mind for you when you talk? And I don't, I, we do talk about this some, for sure. Who's stinking up the joint in 2013? Well, on the men's side, the three names that kind of popped into mind were, I mean, he's not top 30, but David Goffin. Oh, yeah. That's a good answer. He's That kid's got an anvil tied around his neck. Uh, Janko Tipsarovic. Mm-hmm. Also just, I mean, thankfully now he's like, what, barely in the top 20. But before when he was still top 10, it was just ridiculous if you got drawn into a section. It was like the it's open really section. problematic because he would get put into a quarter to slam. And be like the five through eight seed, and then Ferrer would be the one through four seed in that section. I think yep. it happened more than once. 
Yep. And that's just not even. Those Wait. are two good picks. And then the other one, I mean, I don't know if he's like stinking up the joint, but he's definitely been really disappointing to me over the course of the last like maybe year, year and a half is Zolkopolov. Yeah, that's a really good answer. And he's actually going to plummet because he's defending champion in Washington. There you go. And that's 500 points that he got during the Olympics last year. And so when those come off, Zolkopolov is 25 with the points off will fall to like number 40. Wow. So that's a pretty big drop. Assuming right. he defends none of them, which he probably will defend some of them, but probably not all. Yeah, so that's a big drop. The names that came to mind for me, the first one that honestly came to mind was Ryan Harrison. Uh, who yes. this, time, this time last year, I remember not that long ago, was a top 50 player. And now is ranked, I think, 130-something. And that's a huge, huge, fast move in the wrong direction for a guy who has had um, a lot of hope placed on him another person i mean, we talked about him briefly before but i think Federer's had a really bad obviously on a on a curved scale for him mm-hmm. his 12 months have not been good at all he was also number one this time last year and now he is number six in the race mm-hmm. and looking like he's more likely to keep moving down than up and so yeah that's one you named uh Tipsarovich is also a good answer sam query's had a very wowless year yeah he hasn't, that's, he's yeah, that's really just sort of yeah. held level. And this was a really big opportunity for him to sort of make some moves and some open draws. I mean, he lost first round in Newport to Smichek. He lost first round in Wimbledon to Tomic, which is not a terrible loss. That's a really tough first round draw, especially on grass. But he just hasn't capitalized or taken advantage of any of his looks. And he's number 20 and on the verge of being out of the top 20. He's also a Washington semifinalist, speaking of that tournament and all those inflated points. Yeah, other guys who are sinking Baghdadis, obviously, is on a massive losing yeah, streak. That's <laughs> a good call. <laughs> Baghdadis, uh, how many straight has he lost at this point? Do you know? He hasn't won since February. Rotterdam? Yeah, since Rotterdam in February. So that's quite a while. Yeah. Those are the main ones for sure. Obviously, like Donald Young is not doing anything good these days. Yeah, so those are, those are the main ones. On the women's side, you know, the one on the women's side who really jumped out at me, who has really fallen off the charts fast. And quietly, it's Christina McHale. Yeah, Christina well, McHale's like ranked like ninety three now, and she yeah. was and she was like a year ago ranked top thirty, and she was a seed at the U.S. Open last year. I know that she's been sick, but she's been playing really consistently. And if that's just a mistake for her not to have taken longer off, I mean, only she and her team knows. But the results have not been good. She told me in Rome that she she came back too early. Yeah. and stuff so that's just you know it's it's tough because yeah i mean she's just gonna kind of try and play through it and everything and probably hope to just get back to the off season where she can kind of put in the hard yards to because that's the biggest thing about tennis that makes it so difficult i mean well it's a difficult sport for many reasons but one of the reasons is that you're constantly playing and because you're constantly playing you're not like able to have like a extended time to actually like work on your fitness and exactly. to, stuff like that and i think that mikhail is definitely one of those players that needs to that needs that you know eight week fitness block maybe she should probably take off i mean she's not going to get into the main draws in asia so she should definitely skip that this yeah year. i mean she might as well i mean i think that that's right she needs to kind of chill out and refocus her game but you're you're right she has dropped like a brick yeah so that was the one name um the other speaking of dropping like bricks two women who made the finals of the tournaments last week sorry the tournaments this week last year um julia cohen and <laughs> coco vandaway who are not i realize elite prospects <laughs> but they are both way outside the top 200 right now and because those points already came off for them and they both lost early this year so they're gonna stay way out coco might have barely scraped back into the top 200 
this week, but for somebody who had that one big week where she beat some pretty legit people there last year, even if it was not the strongest Stanford draw ever. I mean, she got a bunch of top 50 wins. Mm -hmm. She looks like nothing's right with her whatsoever. And then obviously there's Pashik, who's had an unbelievably bad year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the names that popped out to me for the girls was one was Sibolkova. Okay. Um, she's still she's 25 now, but she's defending final defending champion in Carlsbad next week. I think yeah, but I think those and those points already came off. I think though. Okay, there you go. But she just hasn't had a, a particularly good year. She's been injured throughout and really kind of blames not blames in, in like a oh I shouldn't have played Fed Cup, but does kind of blame a lot of the injuries that she picked up in Fed Cup for just kind of her inability to kind of post consistent results afterwards she's just kind of had an injury addled year she was the one who had that really bizarre match against Vesna Delonc right yep exactly yeah yeah Yeah, where she had like she was basically on an IV for like days after that and then had to like fly to Dubai to like play I think yeah so she's just had like a rough one and she kind of chalks a lot of it up to kind of having to commit to Fed Cup and what those ties had kind of done to her body some of it was fluke like she got like food poisoning i think in serbia and then i think she did pick up like some sort of like injury against russia okay so but yeah i think she's kind of generally had a bit of she's been kind of a non-entity and i'm kind of used to her being at least somewhat relevant yep fair of the year uh yulia gurgis um another name that's just i mean it's just her results are just shockingly bad lately she's down to where is she, she is at number she's down to 43 yeah so yeah she's been a bit disappointing and then obviously francesca i mean obviously she had like a good french yeah. fran did but generally speaking just some of the results she's posting are just sad i didn't realize that i was looking at the ranks i didn't realize that pekovich was all the way back up to number 63 uh, yeah. good for pekka yeah Work. That's about it. I mean, these are people, we're going fairly far down the list at this point. In terms of top 30, Petrova is actually one. Petrova had a really good ending to 2012, won Tokyo, generally played really well, and now she's almost at a top 20 after being yeah. on the cusp of the top 10 at the beginning of the year. Which means that she's going to tumble once Tokyo comes around. Oh, yeah. She won Tokyo and she won Sofia last year. Mm-hmm. So those are points that are probably coming off, and she could be in a bad way there. So those are, those are my picks. Yeah, but everyone's just been kind of all over the place. Yeah, it's been it's been a kind of an inconsistent year. I mean, you know, I think that the players who seem to be like dropping harder seem to be on the men's side. There's just been some like quiet, just like anvils. And on the women's, it's just been really just a lot of just inconsistency and yeah. stuff, which is kind of, yeah, par for the course, I suppose. So, you know, Wozniacki too, it's not a good year, but she sort of stayed where she was. I, 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 every time I see her ranking, I just, I kind of can't believe it. Well, because she won, she won Moscow last year, and that's a yeah. premiere, and that was that was like really quietly done. Didn't she win like? Did she win Seoul? Maybe she probably won Seoul too. Well, yeah, I think she won too. That wouldn't have too many points, but yeah. Well, she's but see, like this year she got like what finals of Indian Wells. Yeah, so that'll keep her. So afloat that for a while. that'll keep her afloat for a while, and semis at Charleston, so that'll keep her somewhat afloat. I think just quarters actually at Charleston, but yeah. That wasn't a semi. No, she lost to Vogelay in the quarters, and then oh Vogelay right, right, right lost to Yankovic in the semis. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Those sure are the slumpies. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully they turn it around if they want to, but not at the expense of anybody else. You know, we're not cheering for anybody. We're, we're super <laughs> neutral here. There's no cheering in the press box, unless you're British and Andy Murray wins. You said it. <laughs> we got another question on Facebook from our buddy Steph, who asks us, who would be a better tennis player? Alex Morgan, Colin Kaepernick, Michael Phelps, or Ben Rothenberg? <laughs> 
She asks this having never seen you play tennis. I've actually seen you play tennis. You have, yes. You saw me when I lost, not when I won at Wimbledon. No, I didn't see you win Wimbledon. I saw you lose in Charleston. I like how you said win Wimbledon. <laughs> like that, that let, let the record reflect that Ben actually won Wimbledon. He won Wimbledon, but let the le- record also reflect that he lost Charleston to Nick McCarville. I did. It happened. Yeah, Clay's not my surface. I'm an American, what can I say? <laughs> I, I really like, because actually at Wimbledon, we played at Wimbledon Park, which is like across the street where people queue. And they have this fake grass. It's like this sort of like carpet with sand on it. And so the ball just dies and you don't really, and you really can't move. And so those are both things that play to my strengths. <laughs> have being, Ben's a bit of a junker. Being immobilized and having the ball die. So it was a great surface for me, and I would love for it to be a real thing. I've actually <laughs> heard that in Australia it's a really common surface, and sometimes they just pour extra sand on the courts and call it a clay court. Oh, my God. So Australia's got some issues. <laughs> but, yeah, back to the question. Who would be a better tennis player, Alex Morgan, Colin Kaepernick, Michael Phelps, or Ben Rothberg? So, Courtney, what do you think? How do you think I would do or any sort of recreational tennis player who's, you know, can hold a racket and has played tennis for a while um, would do against elite athletes from other sports who, let's assume, have no tennis backgrounds themselves? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. If they don't have a tennis background, I kind of feel like any rec player would be, like, in a pretty good position. Because I feel like tennis is, I mean, there is a technical aspect to it. Very much so. Yeah, you can't just, like, pick up a racket and, like, play, really. So, I mean, obviously Colin Kaepernick, big dude. Um, For those who don't know, Colin Kaepernick is the starting quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, my team. My Colin, Michael Phelps, obviously, Olympic gold medalist, greatest swimmer of all time, probably. Um, and Alex Morgan, forward for the U.S. women's national team, soccer yes. uh, or football, whatever. Soccer. It's soccer. <laughs> it's soccer. So, I mean, Kaepernick, big, strong dude, very fast, obviously, we know. But like, a lot of I, upper body strength on him, too. A lot of upper body strength, a lot of lower body strength as well. Obviously, he's a super speedy guy. Phelps, tremendous wingspan. If you got that guy at the net. He'd be a good doubles player. <laughs> Yeah, super. I mean, super good. He might be able to actually get away with playing Canadian doubles if he could learn how to serve. Put him in world team tennis, yeah. Yeah, put him in world team tennis. So that would be interesting. And Alex Morgan, I mean, she kicks a ball for her living. I don't really know if, like, the hand-eye... But she's really... She's her hand. But she's fast. She is fast. But, like, yeah, she is fast. But there's a difference between, like, soccer fast and tennis fast. There's, she doesn't do any, like, side-to-side sort of movement the way Right. And it's it's a lot of kind of, like, more Whereas fluid. Kaepernick would. Kaepernick does side-to-side. Yeah, he can juke. Kaepernick's super agile. But the thing is, like, when I played tennis in high school, we used to sometimes... Our practices were never that intense, so they usually went longer than, like, the track team practices. So sometimes some, like, the sprinters would, like, come down and, like, if they had friends on the tennis team, they'd come down and try to hit some balls, like, as practice was dying down. And they were terrible. Mm-hmm. Like, they could never, like, keep the ball in the court. They would hit things into the back fence constantly. Because if you come out there with no technique whatsoever, it doesn't work. About a book. Like, I turned into a movie recently, actually, by Tony Hawks. Not the skateboarder, but some British comedian guy. Called Playing the Moldovans at Tennis. About this British guy who's, like, a pretty good tennis player. Who makes a bet with his friend that he can beat every member of the Moldovan national soccer team at tennis. And so he goes to Mold- Moldova and, like, tracks all of them down and plays all of them at tennis. And I won't give away the ending, but he does really well against most of them, for sure, because they just are athletes, but they've never played tennis before. And there's a huge, huge learning curve. It's not like trying a sport that would be pretty simple. I feel like basketball or something would be pretty yeah, like translate for most people. Like, if you had, like, I would give somebody, like, a rec basketball player, like, a better chance of, like, scoring on, like, a professional basketball player, just, like, a one-on-one fluky you scored 
congratulations. Or even like in soccer, like a penalty kick. Oh, yeah. Against like, sure. yeah, penalties against like a, a goalie. Like, I give you a better chance of actually pulling that off than someone who doesn't know how to play tennis beating someone who knows how to play tennis, regardless of athletic ability. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say if I was getting like five shots in a penalty shootout thing against what's his name? Let me see if I can name a soccer goalie. Iker. Is that a person? <laughs> I would say that. Did you really just say Iker? Is that his name? <laughs> Eaker. <laughs> Iker, Eaker, tomato, tomato, Eker whatever. Casillas. Oh my god, you're so such a... if me and Iker oh. were out there <laughs> I'm sorry, I read things like they're written. If me and e- me and Eaker that just sounds stupid. Iker. If me and Iker were out there. How about you and five... Hope Solo? You I'll give you okay. Hope Solo. Okay, either way. If I was if I got five shots against each of Hope and Casillas, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I would score at least for sure at least one of the five. Just, I mean, I can kick it hard in a direction and have them guess wrong. That would happen. First of all, I don't think they would be guessing if you were kicking. They would just wait to see where you were kicking the ball, and then they would stop it. Excuse me. I have. You did some... not kick a ball with that pace. No way. Okay. I would <laughs> we have another wibble run challenge then. <laughs> get get Iker down to flushing, and we'll, we'll see what he can do. <laughs> Paging Iker. Hey. Iker Casillas, please, please report to the Billy Casillas. Iker Casillas, please come, yeah. That sounds like a good idea. But I don't know. I mean, I think that against those three people who Steph named, Morgan, Kaepernick, and Phelps, I think I would probably do well the first time. If they practiced, like, with any regularity and, like, learned strokes, I would be in trouble quickly. <laughs> but, I mean, they hadn't, I'd be in pretty good shape. So so you you need the element of surprise. Yes. On your I, side. <laughs> I need them to get abducted and dropped on a tennis court, basically. <laughs> And handed a racket and said, now go. And even then, if any of them play tennis, like, I mean, I don't know. I'm not talking about myself too much. I'm just mostly talking up tennis and the learning curve there is. Right. Tennis is a pretty hard sport. Yeah. So there we go. So now we're going to bring back our take a number segment for the first time in a while. If you haven't heard it before, take a number is where we have a random number generator pick a number for us between number 1 and 100, and then talk about the player who corresponds to that number in both the ATP and WTA rankings. So you got your WTA rankings ready, Courtney? Always do. I got my ATPs. Here we go. Our number between 1 and 100 is... Do-do-do. 67, which is the Ugh. range we always get. I mean, this we never get the low numbers if you're just joining us. 67. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> If we if we don't have much on this, we can we it's can. It's all good. I think it's funny it. when we don't have anything to, to like be like. Mm. I have something on this person. Okay, so Courtney, who is the lady at number sixty-seven? At number sixty-seven, we have none other than Holland's finest. Okay. Hey, Kiki Burton's. Hi, Kiki. <laughs> Kiki Burton's ranked number sixty-seven. Relatively. Not even, not even the number one Kiki anymore. Depending on how you look at it. Oh, that's right. True. All in for Kiki. I'm Ladenovich. The guy at number sixty-seven is. A recent member of the second week of Wimbledon. Does that tell you who it is? A recent member of the second week of Wimbledon? Mm-hmm. Who is in the second week of Wimbledon? Who'd be around number 67 now? Kubo? Close. Who did Kubo play in the uh, week of Wimbledon? Manorino? Manorino it is. Adrian yes. Manorino, number 67. Which I'm pretty sure it's his career. No, actually he made top 50 once. Never mind. So yeah, Adrian Manorino and Kiki Burton are our people. Let's start with... Kiki. What do you know about Kiki, Courtney? So Kiki is 22 years old from the Netherlands. Strong, powerful player, kind of limited movement, generally speaking, but had a really great result earlier in the year, making the quarters of Auckland, 
before she lost to Jamie Hampton. But is she had like real, is that a really great result? It is a good result for her. Okay. I mean, she beat Kuznetsova there. Oh, that's not bad. And okay. then she she so she beat Kuznetsova in three sets there, and then she beat Heather Watson in three sets, and then lost to Jamie Hampton in three sets. And I just remember like watching the match between her and Hampton, and you know just seeing her hit the ball big, and you know yeah. Oh, and she made the semifinals of Paris. I didn't realize that. Yeah, Paris. I think she as a qualifier. That's yeah, not bad. Yeah, as a qualifier, made the semis of Paris before she had to retire to Sarah Ronnie in the semis. Okay. I think I watched that match actually. It was not great to watch because she was hurt. Yeah, I would presume as yeah, much. That's kind of how they work. Yeah, but she's had like okay results. I mean, made the quarters of Acapulco, so two quarters, one semi. But currently on a bit of a well, not on, but in a bit of a rut. She has not won a match since. Rome. How a Rancho roots of her. Just, that's just patriotic solidarity right there. Mm-hmm. And in fact, so so her last, so she lost to Sloane Stevens in Rome okay. in the second round. And then she lost first round French Open to Serranos Cristea. First round uh, to Annabelle Medina Griegas. Mm-hmm. First round Wimbledon to Shvedova. First round Bad Gastein to Victoria Golubic, ranked 259. I've never Swiss. heard of that person. She's from Switzerland. And then this week in Stanford, she lost to Nicole Gibbs. Those are not a lot of great losses. No, those are not good. She lost 6-4-6-1 to Nicole Gibbs. I remember seeing that score on thinking that was weird. Yeah. yeah, so that's a rough patch for her. Obviously, there's something Dutch about bad losing streaks, whether it's Iran Giroud's having a really bad losing streak for a long time um, over the past 12 months. I think it recently just ended mm-hmm. in Bagestein. And then Robin Hassa having a really long losing streak in tie breaks i think like 17 in a row or something ridiculous so that's something dutch about that does not work first of all i think the big one i remember her having even though obviously she had mono it was revealed later was that she upset mikhail in like three long sets at the u.s open last year in the first round who was the seed at that point it was like on a decent sized court like grandstand or something that's like a pretty good big stage win for her in hostile mm-hmm. territory but then also she got nominated and i think she won like fez or marrakesh whatever they call it tournament now I think she won that last year. Yes. But the thing that surprised me, I guess, on their strength of that result is that she was one of the nominees for Newcomer of the Year last year, along right. with Laura Robson, Sloane Stevens, and Heather Watson, all of whom have oodles more hype than her. So I just thought it was interesting that, you know, she's one of these people who sort of is flying under the radar. I don't know if you want to say Janovitz style or something, even though her results are nowhere near that yet. And I don't think her potential is either. But somebody who... You know, hype does not come out in fair doses sometimes. And maybe she's someone who, based on her results, should have more. Possibly. Mm, possibly. I mean, I think she's she is wildly inconsistent. I, I do know that. You know, I think it's hard for her because, you know, like, some players, when it comes to kind of getting or earning hype when they're younger, part of it is obviously which country you come from. Mm-hmm. Because if you are even mildly good at tennis and you come from Britain, British people will let you know that you exist. Yes. I mean, look at today, just today, um, Anki <laughs> yeah. Akhavong retired and a big deal was made out of it by all the British people. And with all due respect to Anne, who's always seemed like a lovely person, if someone of that stature and resume retired in the U.S., it would barely make a peep. Right. So, yeah, I mean, so she obviously comes from a smaller country that that doesn't have as deep of a tennis tradition. So people aren't going to hear about her. But she I mean, she has always been a person or a player that people have mentioned as being part of that younger crew of of maybe generation next. And I should correct myself. She's not 22 yet. She's 21 still. She's kind of she's a name that's been there floating around. But I think one of the problems for her is that I think that her movement will always be one of those things that people 
kind of don't overhype her because it just is seen as something that's going to always hold her back. And like, and like Renee Stubbs was talking about last week on this and nowadays in the tour, like you can't get away with weaknesses like that. Right. More. Right. You used to be able to. Used to, I mean, I don't know. Obviously, she's a great player and great ball striker, but I don't think like a Lindsay Davenport would have had the same success in this era as she would have in the '90s. Well, but even with Lindsay, I mean, she had to improve her movement a lot, incredibly. Yeah. You yeah. know, from when she was when she came on tour, you know, to be you know not just like a standstill hitter because nobody's going to let you hit the ball standing still. Um, you know, that's a knock sometimes against like Laura Robson, for example. It's like, oh well, if her movement gets better, if her movement gets better, you know. But yeah, so I always think that that's one of those things where you can see a player and you can see like certain potential, but if they have like a weakness that you kind of don't think they're ever going to get over, then you wouldn't hype them. But also that weakness. And I think people, we talked about this in context of Taylor Townsend, sometimes having a, a big fixable weakness like that can almost seem like a strength in some ways and yeah. potential. Like, that's well, true. if she improves her movement or her fitness or her serve or fill in the blank, whatever, then imagine how good she'll be. And maybe if Kiki can fix that one aspect of her game, then she'll really skyrocket. Um, so who knows? That's, I mean, probably more than I'm talking, more than I know about Kiki, because I've seen her play like twice, and one of those was an injured match against Irani. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think she could definitely be someone who's in the cusp of the top 30 getting seated for the occasional slam in the next several years, for sure. No, oh, I think that that's definitely the case. I mean, she's already hit career high uh, 41. Yeah. So, you know, it's definitely the potential's there. And, and if she does, you know, just a little bit better at the slams, like she's never made it past the second round at any slam. But if she can just get, you know, a few better slam results, then yeah, she'd get her ranking up there for sure. But first things first, she should probably win a match. That would be helpful. Yeah. It all starts with one. Let's talk about her dance partner, Adrian Manorino, who really got one of the best <laughs> slam draws in recent history to make the fourth round of Wimbledon um, just the same way that who was the other guy who did um Dodig got a bunch of retirements um along the way even though he had a couple of tough opponents who retired on him Manorino's draw at Wimbledon was Andujar on grass Isner who's tough but he only played two games against him before Isner got hurt suddenly with his quad or knee or whatever it's been determined to be uh so he won that on a on a retirement after two games and then Dustin Brown um who was you know Beat Hewitt and was playing decently, but Manorino beat him, and that was a match in the third round of Wimbledon that could have been a qualies match um, had the rankings been made when they were. Um, and then he lost in five sets to Lukasz Kubo out on court 14, the only <laughs> second round match that was yeah. relegated out. Or, sorry, the only second, second week. week match sing, in singles that was relegated outside a show court. So yeah, so that was Manorino, and that totally changed his year and his you know career and his ranking and stuff. He was at 111. And got 75 from that. And then he just made the quarters, actually, of Bogota. So not a big tournament. He didn't beat anybody inside the top 150 to make the quarters. He beat Alejandro Gonzalez and Victor Estrella Burgos. So good on you, Adrian, for that. But, I mean, he's going to be into a bunch of bigger tournaments now. And my Manorino story, I saw him play at Australia Qualies this year. And he was, like, by far the best player during Qualies by a lot. He was killing people. He won like his second round match, like 6 2, 6 1, and then beat Polanski, who'd been playing really well also, Peter Polanski, uh, 6 1, 6 3 in the final round of qualifying. And then, he, and I was like, oh wow, it's like there's one player to watch and qualifying. It's uh, yeah, Adrian Manorino. You, you kind of went all in on Manorino after I did qualies. go all in on Manorino. I was like, oh, and then he got the draw and that he played Del Potro. And Del Potro had like some injury concerns. I was like, upset alert, Manorino, the qualifier, <laughs> dangerous. He's coming in with some hot form against Del Potro. 
It was, I think, the first match put on high sense in the entire tournament, that match. And Manorino lost 6-1, 6-2, 6-2. <laughs> and I didn't feel super smart, but I sort of, I think, hopefully sort of owned it. I was like, wow, qualities don't mean anything. Good to know. <laughs> and from that point on, like, I've never, I don't think I'll ever read into a qualities, like, hot streak the same way again. Just because of how, how much of a thud that was. So, wow, you got burned. It was, I mean, he won five games in three sets. That's not good. <laughs> And he had just come off winning the Numea Challenger before that, too. Mm-hmm. So he was, like, really, I think, you know, putting chips on him, I don't think, was completely ridiculous. He had won eight straight matches at that point. But, I mean, he just totally did not show up. So that was a good lesson for me in keeping my uh, keeping my thoughts holstered sometimes. My Adrian Manorino story involves only learning that he was French when I had to write up Isner's knee injury. <laughs> oh, did you think he was, like, Italian? I don't know what, I mean, I don't think that I ever really thought about Adrian Manorino ever. So it's not like I really thought anything. But when I had to sit down and I was writing, I was like, you know, John Isner, like, forced to retire to, like, Adrian Manorino. And then I was like, wait, where, is he French? Is he Italian? Is he Spanish? I gotta look that up. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I'm normally good about knowing, like, who's who. But yeah, I had to. I actually had to look up where he was from. France has a bunch of those players. Yeah, well, Johansson, Kenny DeShepper. Kenny DeShepper should absolutely be like Dutch or South African. Uh, he boggled my mind. Another yeah. one where I had to like, du- I double checked it and I was like, holy crap, he's French. Yeah, Kenny totally. DeShepper, who also made the fourth round of Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. France had kind of a banner Wimbledon. Like, let's let's they talk did. about that. They really did. Bartoli, Mladenovic won the mix. I guess you can throw in there too. Mm-hmm. DeShepper made second week. Manorino made, Manorino second, made week. second week. Uh, Gasquet, I think, lost third round. Sanga got, had a disappointing one. So it was like it was weird because their top people are were going to the tournament, Sanga and Gasquet, and they didn't do anything. But Bartoli and those other guys totally stepped up. So good for them. Good for France. Allé, as they say. Allé, as they actually do say. So we don't usually discuss the outro songs before we play them. We I normally just sort of put them in there afterwards. But this week's outro song, I know that we're both excited about. So Courtney, I wanted to ask you what your thoughts are in big picture on both the, the artist and song of the thing we're about to hear, which is the, the Vampire Weekend cover of Blurred Lines. It is my happy place. It's pretty it's good. Lovely. It's pretty darn good. I mean, first of all, I have to, I have to confess, like... As Ben knows, I don't listen to a lot of pop music. Like, I, if it's played on the radio, generally speaking, I probably haven't heard it because I don't listen to the radio. The only place you really hear pop music, from what you've told me, is at tournaments. Exactly, at tournaments where I'll hear so. Even just the other day, I was at Stanford, and they were playing some song that if I were to play it for you now, like, you'd know what it is. And I actually had to turn to, like, my friend Steph and be like, who sings this? And she's like, Rihanna. And I was like, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> like, I had no clue. And it's like a song that's been out for like years. Yeah. So, but I first heard Blurred Lines when I was on vacation in Rome with my sister. And at first, like, we kind of thought the song was really annoying. And then it totally burrowed itself into our brains. And we kind of really loved it. It came on all the time because we were watching like Euro MTV. Mm-hmm. And they only play 10 videos anyway. And that was one of them. So, love that. So I kind of do love Blurred Lines, like not I think it's pretty great. I think, I think it's, it's a great jam. It's it's hilarious. What do you, what do you think about thing. the Jezebel type outrage about it? Yeah, I think that that's lame. I mean, I think because honestly, like, especially in the context of 
everything, like not just the song, but the the video, it's just not rapey. I really don't think that it is. And even just, it's so tongue in cheek and it's so... It's so over the top. It's so over the top. It's just not. And like, and at the same time, like, I think we all kind of know what he's getting at. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It's playful. It is all playful. I'm saying. It's definitely It's playful. totally playful. So I don't really subscribe to the whole Jezebel outrage. And then obviously Vampire Weekend. Love, always have. Vampire Weekend, for those people who don't know, is the house band of No Challenges Remaining. Exactly. Ezra, love you. Um, so yeah, and you and I were talking about this offline, about how they just know what songs to cover. I really like their songs they do themselves, and they also pick songs I already really like to cover. It doesn't happen much with people. All the songs that they've covered, I think the three that I can think of that come to mind are Blurred Lines, Everywhere by Fleetwood Mac, mm-hmm. and Fight for This Love, which is our NCR theme song. Right. And those are all songs that I like independently thought were awesome before. And we don't share a whole lot of musical overlap, you and I. <laughs> Very but, true. <laughs> well, but we share more than people might think in that you know we both like Vampire Weekend, both mm-hmm. like Fleetwood Mac, as we just mentioned, mm-hmm. and No Doubt, mm-hmm. so another shared thing of ours. I mean, yeah, there's there's some common ground there. And I think this Blurred Lines Vampire Weekend song is sort of our happy place there. Totally agree. How do you feel about their new album, BT Dubs? Love it. It's good, right? I do. I enjoy it. I enjoy it. I mean, I have to listen to it more. Like I've only, I've probably only listened to it like front to back, like, you know, maybe like less than 10 times. Yeah. I think it's definitely like sort of a, a grower. Yeah. Than the other ones. Not quite as accessible. I totally agree. So, you know, it's not as, like, immediately catchy as their first one, and their second one I liked as well, but this one, it feels like, I already kind of know that if I listen to it more, I will really, really, really love it, and possibly love it more than the other ones, but it's just going to take, it's just going to take some time. Sometimes music is worth it, you know? It is, it is. So, we'll leave you with that, Blurred Lines by Vampire Weekend. Have a good one, folks. Hope all of your lives are not blurry, unless you want them to be. I don't know. I know you want it. Etc. Yeah, <laughs> that was rapey. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll we'll leave it at that. Bye, guys. Bye. No, that 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 was creepy. <laughs> Yeah. Hey.